0: any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com
2: slash NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. All right, joining me will be Craig Salm, Chief Legal Officer at Grayscale Investments, who last week, they prevailed in their lawsuit against the SEC. Uh, Grayscale was, of course, challenging the SEC, who had denied the conversion of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, into an ETF. Grayscale filed this lawsuit back in June of last year, and it took a while But we finally got a decision, and I've got to tell you, this was really a landslide ruling. All three judges sided with grayscale. Uh, This was being decided in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And the language used in the written opinion by uh, Judge Rao, I thought was extremely uh, forceful. This didn't look like a uh, borderline call by the court. This was really a strong rebuke of the SEC's logic in allowing futures-based Bitcoin ETFs while uh, continuing to deny spot-based ETFs. So we are going to get into everything surrounding this ruling and what it means for the prospects of spot Bitcoin ETFs moving forward. And then we'll also cover some of the key points in this comment letter grayscales legal team sent to the SEC yesterday which is obviously highly applicable to uh, everything going on here now later I'll be joined by Tom Leiden vice chairman of vetify and I'll certainly get his thoughts on this uh, grayscale ruling as well but we're then going to spend the majority of our time drilling down into ETF flow so far this year uh, both on the equity side and and fixed income side. If you look, flows are still muted overall, but there are several interesting trends that I think are worth discussing because they really tie into current investor sentiment and uh, how investors might think about things moving forward. So we'll parse through those flows and find out how Tom is viewing the world here. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate NateGeraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Grayscale's Craig Salm. Craig, welcome to the uh, podcast. I appreciate you taking the time today.
0: Hey, Nate. Thank you so much for having me. I can legitimately say that I'm a longtime listener and
2: first-time caller. Well, well look, uh, r- really glad to have you here, and congratulations on the ruling in this case. And we're certainly going to get into all of the details of that ruling and uh, what comes next. But I thought, I, I think as you know, if you're a long-time listener, I always like covering the basics. And so I thought, let's just start higher level. Even though I know a lot of our listeners are very familiar with this case, and uh, what's happened here just to properly set the stage give us the quick background in terms of why grayscale originally brought this lawsuit and what the main thrust of the legal argument was here
0: yeah absolutely um the history here is extremely important and i would love to give you just a hopefully a quick background on what really started all the way back in 2013 when we first launched gptc Back then, it was just a private placement, always intended to convert into an ETF when permitted by the regulatory environment. Fast forwarding to 2015, GBTC became the first publicly available Bitcoin investment vehicle in the U.S. Fast forward to January 2020, it became the first SEC reporting digital currency investment vehicle. And then fast forwarding to the summer of 2021, when we first refiled our 19B4 to convert GBTC into an ETF. The reason why we did on that date was because that was the first time that the first Bitcoin futures ETF started trading in the U.S. And to us, that meant that, well, if the commission is now okay with Bitcoin futures, then they really should be okay with spot Bitcoin, given that Bitcoin futures are a derivative of Bitcoin itself. So that is what kicked off this 240-day open comment letter period, where we received an outpouring of support. Um, We broke a record in terms of comment letters for exchange rule changes. It was 11,500 letters, the vast majority uh, all in favor of of GPTC's conversion. This included letters from academics, from market participants, from um, investors, you know, members of Congress sent in letters, not to the comment letter file, but but publicly as well, um, all expressing support. And after we made that filing, we saw the first subsequent spot Bitcoin ETF denial. And that's what led to the first letter that we sent to the SEC, which was that they were now potentially violating the APA by treating two like products, Bitcoin future ETFs and spot Bitcoin ETFs, dissimilarly. Fast forward to April of 2022. And we saw the first Bitcoin futures ETF that was approved not under the 40 Act, which was the original um, approval from earlier in the previous year, but under the 33 Act. And so we felt that that was really making our, our argument even stronger because that was the same regulation that GBTC as an ETF would be approved under. However, we started to see more spot Bitcoin ETF denials and were thinking that we may actually be denied ourselves. And so we engaged a gentleman named Don Verrilli, who was a former Solicitor General under Obama, just knowing that we wanted to have the best legal minds available to us if we were going to have to go down this road and, you know, suing the SEC if we were denied. Fast forward to June of that year, and unfortunately, we were denied. And on that very same day, we filed this lawsuit with the D.C. Circuit challenging the SEC's denial of GBTC's conversion to an ETF. And the real basis of our argument all along, which is a very common sense and compelling argument, is that Bitcoin futures and spot Bitcoin are inextricably linked. That's based on the qualitative features, since the price of futures are based on predictions from the spot market and quantitative data that we provided to the SEC, actually. Um, For example, Professor Bob Whaley, who was one of the co-founders of the VIX Index, did a years-long study comparing Bitcoin futures to spot, and concluding that they were 99% correlated with each other, which is to say that they were essentially the same. Um, So that kicked off the lawsuit. Uh, We filed briefs. We received several supportive amicus briefs from the traditional finance and crypto sectors, had oral arguments, came out of there feeling very confident. And then all of that culminating into last week's unanimous decision from the panel of three judges ruling in our favor. Um, So it was a really big day for us, our shareholders, the crypto investment communities overall.
2: That's great background, Craig. And I'll just uh, hammer home a couple of the points you made there just to boil this down for listeners. The APA that you mentioned, the Administrative Procedure Act, that, again, requires the SEC to treat like situations alike absent a reasonable basis for for different treatment. So this means in the case of of Grayscale, the SEC must treat similarly situated investment products similarly. Very, very simple. And if I were to summarize what happened here – And these uh, continued denials of spot Bitcoin ETFs, the SEC kept pointing to the potential for fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot Bitcoin market. The problem with that is the CME-traded Bitcoin futures, which, of course, are held by Bitcoin futures ETFs, they get their pricing cues from the exact same crypto exchanges as a spot ETF would. And so if you just take a step back, if there's fraud and manipulation in the spot market, then that would impact futures-based ETFs as well. I mean, to me, this seems pretty straightforward. Those markets are highly intertwined. The, the other point here I think is worth mentioning is the SEC is saying that the uh, CME Bitcoin futures market is not of significant size as it pertains to a spot Bitcoin ETF. And we can get into this this later. But yet, of course, they approve Bitcoin futures ETFs based on those same CME traded futures. So that's kind of the the underpinning of the uh, the, the lawsuit on what's going on here. Let, let me ask you this. You mentioned the unanimous ruling. So all three judges... Uh, on this federal appeals court. They all ruled in Grayscale's favor. And the language used in the written opinion, boy, Craig, I I would say it was very forceful, as I noted at the top. Judge Rao did not hold back in that opinion. I guess did that surprise you at all, just the overall tenor of the written opinion, how strong it was against the SEC?
0: Well, so the judges are really reacting to the briefs that we submitted and the SEC submitted and then the responses to their questions and oral arguments. So, what the opinion is, is a reflection of their views after thinking about all of those issues presented and the arguments that they received. And from day one, you know, the, the very day we filed the GBTC 19 before, we thought that we had very strong, common sense, and compelling arguments. And those became even more persuasive once we started to see you know, the first 40-act Bitcoin futures ETFs are trading, but then the first 33-act Bitcoin futures ETFs are trading as well. And I think the opinion just shows that the judges agreed with us, and that was something that we really thought was the the correct outcome there.
2: Okay, so from here, as I understand it, there's a 45-day window where the SEC can appeal this ruling. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is also that regardless of what the SEC does, that 45-day clock has to run its course is is the way I I, I interpret this. So, So any thoughts on what the SEC might do? And maybe just explain that time frame in a little more detail, like what exactly happens after 45 days?
0: That's right. So under the federal rules of appellate procedure, the matter is still technically with the court until they issue their mandate, which will have some additional information in there about what they believe the, the commission, how the commission should respond. And so this is a process that we have to honor and respect. It allows the commission time to go through the opinion and decide on whether they would like to seek a rehearing of the case or not. So it is 45 days from last week, which brings you up to October 13th, I believe. And that's just something that we have to let play out because the commission needs to be afforded the opportunity to go through the opinion and decide on next steps. Um, they could take less time than that, but it's something that we just have to you know, let play out of the course of the coming days.
2: I know you're not uh, here, obviously, to help the SEC's cause, per se, but it is possible the SEC might attempt to reject spot Bitcoin ETF filings for some other reason. And the one that I keep hearing about uh, is based on the actual custody of Bitcoin and that CME Bitcoin futures, which are held by the futures-based ETFs, those are cash settled. And there's obviously no custody of spot Bitcoin involved, whereas spot Bitcoin ETFs would have to store the underlying Bitcoin. And so maybe that presents some additional risks. And I I know in the comment letter that was sent yesterday, um, your your legal team pointed to maybe some of these other potential reasons that the SEC could come up with. Let me me read this. Um, They said, if any other reason could be offered, in attempting to differentiate spot Bitcoin ETPs from Bitcoin futures ETPs, whether based on the exchange acts requirements that uh, rules be designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices or otherwise. And, and this is the key. We are confident that it would have surfaced by now in one of the 15 commission orders that rejected spot Bitcoin rule 19 b 4 filings even after Bitcoin futures ETPs begin trading. And so with that backdrop, I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on whether the SEC could come up with some other reason to reject spot Bitcoin ETFs?
0: Yeah. So we submitted a letter to the SEC yesterday, which is something that we've done over the course of our pending 19 B4 application. Um, I mentioned how in 2021, when the first uh, spot Bitcoin ETF was denied, we sent in a letter um, through Davis Polk that said that you know we believe the SEC should not be treating these products similarly. We sent another letter in in uh, early Q1 of 2022 um, after this 33 Act ETF was approved as well, saying why we think the SEC should approve spot Bitcoin ETFs. We submitted a third letter that addressed the surveillance share agreement proposals that have come up over the last couple of months. And so yesterday was really the fourth letter that we've sent into the SEC because we think there are certain things that they should keep in mind as they're evaluating the court's opinion. And one of the points that we make in there is that the commission has, since the very first Bitcoin ETFs were filed, really focused on this potential for fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot Bitcoin market as being a reason for denying ETFs. And the argument that we had was, given the futures have been approved, any sort of fraud or manipulation that the commission may have been concerned about would be addressed by the surveillance and regulation of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is overseen by the CFTC and can account for things like fraud or manipulation. And the court's opinion agreed with that as well, that the CME surveillance is sufficient to account for anything in the spot market, and so that is the reason for approving spot Bitcoin ETFs. If there were some other reason for the commission denying these products, we believe they would have come up in the 15 denials that have been very, you know, thoughtfully and, and um, descriptively explained since the first Bitcoin futures ETF was approved. So I can't think of another reason for denying. And in the absence of that, um, you know, we have investors that we're thinking about. For GBTC, There's nearly a million investors across all 50 states who deserve the protections that come with the ETF wrapper.
2: You mentioned the uh, Coinbase surveillance sharing agreement. I I want to um, sort of crystallize this point here because, as you're obviously well aware, BlackRock filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF back in June. And then we saw a whole slew of filings from a number of other issuers. And the big talking point with those filings is this surveillance-sharing agreement with Coinbase, right? This has been billed as the uh, novel approach that might get the SEC comfortable. But to your point, in the comment letter your your legal team sent to the SEC back in July, as well as this one yesterday, um, Grayscale said, look, this Coinbase surveillance-sharing agreement is no silver bullet, right? And the existing surveillance-sharing agreement with CME should be sufficient. And so I, I just want to clarify, now that we have this favorable ruling In your case, it sounds like you think your argument is even stronger in that the existing surveillance-sharing agreement with CME is sufficient. Do do I have that right? Or do you think the Coinbase surveillance-sharing agreement makes any difference at all? Like, like, could that help things here?
0: We don't think it should make a difference in this context. It's certainly great to see more surveillance and protections being added to the underlying spot Bitcoin markets. But in the context of spot Bitcoin ETF approvals, it is not a condition to approving. In our view, the SEC has already had the tools available to it to approve spot Bitcoin ETFs. And the court's opinion really highlighted that as well. They stated that Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures for all relevant regulatory factors are the same because of that inextricable link that we proved and that was supported by quantitative studies. And the CME surveillance is the same, whether you're using it to rely on a Bitcoin futures ETP or a spot Bitcoin ETP, and therefore that is what gets you to the commission, um, you know, being in a place where they can approve GBTC to convert into an ETF. So for us, the CME surveillance has always been sufficient, and the court agreed with that last week.
2: In terms of other potential options for the SEC, one of the things they – theoretically could do is force the uh, closure and delisting of the existing futures-based ETFs. Now, I'll say I think that's highly unlikely, given they recently allowed a uh, two-times leveraged Bitcoin futures ETF to come to market. It sounds like they're going to allow these Ethereum futures ETFs to come to market as well. But could you see any scenario where they uh, do force the closure of futures-based Bitcoin ETFs to keep, quote-unquote, like situations alike?
0: I can't really speculate on what the commission will do. You know, we do have to honor this time period they have to review the opinion and and decide on next steps. Um, You know, unwinding the Bitcoin futures is not something that Grayscale would want or support. We think investors should have as many options as they desire to gain their Bitcoin exposure, whether that's through GBTC, another spot Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin directly, Bitcoin futures, what have you. Um, Where we do think there should be a change is in allowing, you know, more product approvals. And we don't think that investors should be forced into more complicated or less efficient alternatives like Bitcoin futures just because those are the only ones that have been made available. And that's one of the other points that we touched on in the letter we submitted to the SEC yesterday.
2: Assuming the SEC does decide to allow spot Bitcoin ETFs to come to market at some point in the relatively near future, I'd love to hear how you think this should happen. And I believe we now have, what, 10 other filings out there, if we include an ETF that would switch from owning futures to spot, which I do want to ask you about that in a moment. But do you think all of these should be approved at once? Or are there some other factors you you believe should be considered in terms of the timing of approval? And also add to that, again, in this letter that was sent yesterday, as I read it, Grayscale's legal team was essentially questioning whether the SEC had already exceeded its time frame for making a decision, which, uh, y- y- you know, I, I don't want to get too far into the technical weeds. That would be deemed implicit approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF. Why that's important is if you look at the clock on this, theoretically, at least by by my calculations, Grayscale would be first in line, assuming that 19B4 uh, is still a live filing, which I'll ask you about that in a moment as well. But but what do you think should be done here in terms of uh, approval of these these ten filings out there.
0: That's right. So in, in terms of timing, we filed our 19 before back in October of 2021. As I mentioned, we were denied in June of 2022, which was a bit before that statutory 240 day review period. And then last week, the court vacated that that denial order. So we, you know, in our view, the the application is still pending before the SEC. Um, they do have this opportunity to review it and to see if they want to appeal it. But we believe that the 19b-4 should be approved expeditiously because, in the meantime, you know, we do have investors that are in the product that deserve those protections. There is this discount that the product is trading at that would be addressed upon ETF conversion, since the arbitrage mechanism would be able to take place. So, for us. You know, the stakes are just very different from some of these other filers where they have funds that they would like to launch, whereas we have an existing fund with investors and AUM and trading volume and track record and so on. Um, So we believe the SEC should, you know, approve it expeditiously.
2: And again, just to clarify this, my interpretation from the letter yesterday was that Grayscale does view that original 19B4 filing as Uh, quote-unquote, live. In in other words, it it sounds like you don't believe you need to refile at this point. Is that correct?
0: Right. That's what we point out in the letter, that it's a pending filing since the court has vacated the order as of last week.
2: Okay. Let me ask you this. um, In terms of the timing, and I I know this is probably unlikely, but it it is possible the SEC might allow some of these other filings to come to market while you're uh, stuck in this 45-day appeal window, right? Theoretically, the SEC could do that. And I'm just curious how Grayscale might view that situation.
0: You know, I think the SEC, um, they want to do what's right by investors in the market. Um, In the context of crypto, you know, we've said that they have a they have a tough job, there's a lot of different considerations to take into account um, what digital assets are securities versus commodities, how should the various market participants be regulated? Um, but in this context, we have Bitcoin, a commodity, married with an ETF, which is a very well-understood investment vehicle that's been around for over 30 years now. And so we view the decision as very straightforward and something the SEC has the tool to do. Um, so, you know, I have nothing but respect for the folks that have been working on this particular issue there, you know, this particular issue there for, for many years now. And I think they want to do what's right in terms of thoroughness, and, you know, promoting innovation and um, fair, orderly and efficient markets, which is the part of their mandate. Uh,
2: assuming the SEC does get comfortable at some point, and we don't have to get into the technical weeds here. I'm just curious, what is the actual conversion to an ETF look like? And I know it's not technically a conversion, at least I don't believe it is. My understanding is it's more just that uh, GBTC shares uplist to the, uh, the NYSE ARCA from the current over-the-counter market. Is there anything else to that?
0: That's the right way to think about it. So GBTC is trading today on OTCQX, which is the top tier of OTC markets. What the 19 v. 4 accomplishes is uplisting the shares from OTC markets to Arca. So if you're a GBTC investor and the conversion happens, essentially you could just go into your brokerage account and you would still see your position except instead of trading on OTC markets, it would not be trading on NYC ARCA. So no action would need to be taken by shareholders. So it is very helpful to think of it as an uplisting. And then the other key point is that the shares will be able to be continuously created and redeemed, which is what would allow the arbitrage mechanism to work and address the historical premiums and discounts that GBTC has been trading at.
2: Okay, just a few minutes left here. And I, I don't know if you can comment on this, but I was alluding to this earlier. I'm assuming you saw um, Hashdex recently filed to update the strategy on their Bitcoin futures ETF to allow it to hold spot Bitcoin as well. And the way they would accomplish this is through uh, what's called exchange for physical transactions on the CME. Essentially what they're, they're doing or what they would be doing is swapping Bitcoin futures. Uh, for spot bitcoin within the cme ecosystem i think that's the key here in, in this filing any thoughts on that approach does that make any sort of difference in your mind
0: yeah i mean i again it's hard to speculate on on what the commission will do but to me that presents the same question which is whether the commission will approve spot bitcoin etfs following our decision last week. We think there's an even stronger argument for the commission approving, um, and we believe they should do so expeditiously. But it's really difficult to speculate on whether other ways of getting there would, would change their perspective.
2: I would concur with that. It's been uh, very difficult to speculate on anything as it pertains to uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs over the past few years. Uh, Craig, before I let you go, I, 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 I think I know that you're not going to be able to answer this specifically, but I do want to ask you uh, about this anyways, and that's the fees on GBTC and what happens if and when this uh, converts or uplists uh, to to an ETF. And so if you look now, the fee is currently 2%. And Grayscale has been very public about the commitment to reduce this fee once GBTC is converted. And, again, I know you're not going to tell us exactly what your fee might be, but what I am curious about is how important you think fees will be in terms of competing in the uh, spot Bitcoin ETF space. And do you have any sense as to where fees might land initially? Maybe not your fee, but could you see a competitor launch at say, I, I don't know, 25 basis points or less than 40 basis points, which does seem to be a big cutoff in the uh, the ETF world in terms of where flows are going. Just any thoughts on how this fee competition might play out?
0: Yeah, so Nate, you invited the chief legal officer on to talk about the lawsuit. <laughs> so <Can't, laughs> um, Can't can't speculate again on on fees, but that's true we have been public in saying that upon ETF conversion, we would be reducing the GBTC fee. And otherwise, we're very much looking forward to competition in the market. Um, We think the more ways that investors can access Bitcoin, it's only better for them, depending on what their particular prerogatives are. So spot Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures, spot Bitcoin, ETP, ETF, Bitcoin futures, ETP, ETF. We think that's all great for the market and the overall ecosystem. So looking forward to seeing what the competitive landscape looks like.
2: That is an excellent answer from a, a chief legal officer. I'll have to have your uh, head of ETFs, Dave Lavelle, on to uh, talk about the competitive landscape in the, uh, the ETF world. sure level. he would be happy to. But uh, Craig, again, congratulations on this uh, initial ruling last week. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to chat. I just continue to be fascinated with this entire spot Bitcoin ETF story. We'll continue to follow along here. But thank you for joining me this week.
0: Thank you, Nate. Take care.
2: That was Craig Salm, Chief Legal Officer at Grayscale Investments. Fidelity Active ETFs combine the best of what Fidelity has always offered, an industry-leading approach to
0: active management, decades of proprietary data, and a commitment to help you on your financial journey. All that and the flexibility of an ETF. Visit fidelity.com ETFs to learn more. ETFs are subject to market fluctuations and the risks of their underlying investments, management fees, and other expenses. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC.
2: Let's now chat with
1: Vetify's Tom sun. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
3: This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes
2: Tom, welcome back to the uh, podcast. How have you been?
3: Great, Nate. Great. Thanks so much. I've been looking forward to this.
2: All right. So look, real quick, uh, before you and I get into ETF flows, I was just chatting with Grayscale's Craig Psalm, who I have to say was uh, excellent. We covered a ton of ground, but I thought I'd ask you, do you have any uh, initial reaction to this Grayscale ruling last week, or are you just glad we're like uh, one step closer to a spot Bitcoin ETF, so I'll stop talking about it? (laughs)
3: <laughs> no, it's it's great. I mean, uh, a little spicy here, it, and it's it's wonderful. The fact that uh, you know Grayscale fought back; uh, they've got ground for it. Uh, the fact that th- there's probably no way that Kinsler is going to fall on the sword. Uh, at one point in time, we're going to see a spot Bitcoin and ETF, and we we see confidence in companies. Uh, not just Grayscale, but we, we see companies like BlackRock and WisdomTree and Ark, and a whole bunch of others that are piling in. Um, Eventually, it's probably good for the business, but it's a long time coming for sure.
2: Yeah, no question. We're now what ten plus years since the Winklevoss twins filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. I believe that was in like July of 2013. So, um, yes, I'm sure everybody will be happy when this comes to a conclusion. Investors will be happy, uh, ETF Prime listeners, <laughs> everybody. Uh, <laughs>
3: well, uh, I know, I know. And what else are you going to have to talk about, Nate? Uh, I mean, this a, has been
2: one. <laughs> we're going to talk ETF flows. We'll We'll always have ETF flows to uh, to talk about, Tom. So uh, let's actually uh, go there now. And uh, look, we, we just concluded August. We're now heading into the uh, fall, which is really hard to believe. But um, I show about $295 billion in ETF inflows this year. And I actually mentioned this at the top. And, and we've talked about this, uh, you know, I think all year. Flows have been muted overall, right? I think especially if you look at the equity side. And so, if we just start higher level here, Tom, what has stood out to you on the flow data? Like, like, what do you think are some of the biggest headlines this year when you look at ETF flows?
3: Well, you're right, and you know, about a, uh, when you look at 175 billion in equity ETFs flows year to date, it's it's light. It surely is light, and and rightly so after a tough year last year, both for equities and for fixed income. Uh, There's a lot, still a lot of concern about volatility. There's concern about valuation out there. However, there's some green shoots. I mean, even though we saw the Magnificent Seven really launch the S&P 500 to lofty levels earlier in the year, in the last three months, we've started to see other areas of the market pick up. Small caps have picked up a bit and gotten flows. We've seen areas like equal weight S&P 500, RSP, uh, get a lot of new money in. And it's nice to see areas like quality and value actually get some attraction, attraction as well. But over on the fixed income side, one thing we saw a couple months ago was the average advisor started to go longer duration. So even though they maybe had a lot of money in short duration or even money in cash and money market funds, they thought that going into 24 that we would see some type of recession, And with a recession, the Fed might cut rates. So they didn't want to get caught short duration, wanted to make sure that they protected that yield and go out there. But most recently, the Fed has signaled a little bit more concern uh, about fighting inflation and that we might have higher rates for longer. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the flows look like between now and the end of the year. Because as you know, that $6.2 trillion that's in money market funds paying about 5% feels really good especially for those folks that lost money in fixed income last year.
2: I am so glad that you you brought up this topic of duration. I'd actually had this flag for our conversation and and by the way just backing up I show about 130 billion overall into uh fixed income ETFs this year but when you start digging into those flows Tom and look at just US Treasury ETFs. So so listen to this there's been over $78 billion into those products alone, and what's interesting is it's been all across the curve, including about twenty-five billion into long-duration products like uh, TLT, the the iShares twenty-plus year right. Treasury Bond ETF, that has nearly sixteen billion in inflows all by itself. And w- on this topic of duration, I think I think you and I covered this a, a few months ago. But to your point, the Fed does seem to be sig- signaling that interest rates could stay higher for longer, and so. From my perspective, I I feel like that's presenting a bit of a uh, conundrum for investors right now. And, and the way that I'll continue to frame this, I, I just think this is a very simple example, is that you can get a uh, 5.34% SEC yield in an ETF like ESCOV, S-G-O-V. That's the iShare 0-3 Month Treasury Bond ETF. That's basically risk-free, right? Hardly any duration risk. Or... You can get a 4.22% yield in an ETF like TLT. The, 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 the problem with that is TLT has a duration of over 17. And we can certainly work in uh, corporate bond ETFs or high yield bond ETFs as well if, if you want. But it just seems like there's a real tug of war right now where one side of investors is saying, you know what? A 5.3% yield, risk-free, that sounds pretty darn good. But then there's another camp, which is what you were alluding to, where they're saying, hey, let's lock in longer-term yields at w- whatever, 4.2%, maybe get some capital appreciation if rates come back in, and you know that'll be a pretty good place to be. So do, do you have any additional thoughts just around that conundrum, or, or what are you hearing from advisors right now? So
3: both sides of that story have some challenges. Number one, if the Fed is signaling uh, higher rates for longer, just because they may have one or two hikes uh, under their belt that they may start to spring onto the marketplace, that's one thing. But as far as credit, you know, when you look at corporate credit or you look at high yield, there are a lot of folks on Wall Street that are saying, we might see those rates go up 200 or 300 bips. Boy, you know, that that's not even appreciation or even being flat. Uh, That's kind of adding insult to injury as far as your overall value in your account. So those that are actually going long duration now, anticipating a recession, anticipating lower rates, could get hit with a pretty hefty headwind that they didn't expect. Um, However, if they're holding to duration, that's fine. But as you know, Nate, with ETFs, even on the active side, you're going to get affected by that. So that's one thing. The other side of that equation is this if you're getting paid five percent in short duration or in a money market fund right now that's great but what we do know is when the fed hits its targets and if we actually do see a recession they're not orderly in the way that they signal cuts uh, it, they come in with a machete and they start chopping very very quickly and we could see rates within money market funds get cut in half in a matter of months if they have to start applying Rate cuts to the marketplace, and then now now you're on the sidelines. You've missed the opportunity for appreciation, and that doesn't feel so good.
2: I think all of that is extremely well said. I think you laid out the conundrum perfectly. Um, I, I think I agree with with all of that. I come back to, and this is not investment advice. Everybody knows that. Do your own homework. It just seems really tough to beat scooping up a five five and a half percent yield, risk free. You know, versus taking on duration risk of, again, you look at TLT, 17 plus for for less yield. Or to your point, if you want to traffic in corporate or or high yield, I come back to the risk return. You know, what does that look like? And it just seems right now we can't rule out that, look, the Fed could continue to pull this off. We we have a soft landing. The economy could continue uh, humming along, and and rates do stay higher for longer. I don't think we can rule out another rate hike or two. I'm not saying that should be the base case, but I don't think you can rule it out uh, either. Um, The Fed's clearly challenged, uh, (laughs) or has been challenged with inflation and and how to rein this in, and I I just don't think we can say for certain what's going to happen. And so just from a pure risk-reward standpoint, I think that... uh, some of those short-duration or ultra-short-duration, high-quality, right, investment-grade bond ETFs look compelling. But, again, everybody should yeah. do their own their own homework. Going back to the equity side of the equation that you mentioned, so uh, I, I wrote this down. As you, so you mentioned RSP. That's the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF. I show that has over $8 billion dollars. Uh, in in inflows um, this year, which is pretty remarkable. And I think, to your point, just that dominance of the magnificent seven stocks uh, and and really can blow that out to the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. Uh, I I think the weighting of those top 10 stocks is something like 31 or 32% now. You look at the NASDAQ 100, same deal. So you can understand why some investors might be looking at an ETF like RSP, uh, I believe you mentioned small cap, so an ETF like IWM. Again, maybe investors looking to get away from some of those top-heavy I- indexes and, and looking down the cap spectrum. But a- anything else standing out to you? I, th- I think you mentioned quality er- earlier. What else are you seeing in terms of equity ETF flows?
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I think a couple things, Nate. Look, if two years ago you were worried about uh, the markets, you were worried about equities, you were worried about rising interest rates – And maybe you took some off the table on the equity side and the fixed income side. And if you've avoided some of that pain, congratulations. Give yourself a pat on the back. But as we look at markets today, I think the key is diversification. And there's a lot of opportunity to diversify both on the equity side and the fixed income side. And more importantly, both, when you look at the skies ahead, look a lot brighter than they did a couple years ago. So, Diversify. Uh, yes, S&P 500 is great, but it's also very, very heavy in just a handful of stocks, looking to an equal weight strategy or looking to mid caps and small caps, where the valuation in some cases is 50% off of what you would pay uh, with the S&P 500. I think that's important. Also overseas, valuations are very, very cheap right now. And even areas like China where there's a lot of upheaval, but that's almost the best time to buy. So looking back on the 60-40, I think think 60-40 is back. I think for the average investor, especially as you're approaching retirement or getting into retirement, there's not a lot of headwinds in place right now, and that's something to think about. As far as other areas, alternatives, and this is something that we're seeing more and more – Uh, appetite in, alternative income strategies, areas like the JP Morgan JEPI product where you're getting a 10% yield or QILD, it's amazing how a lot of advisors today when they look at their fixed income allocation are now saying that these alternative income strategies deserve a permanent position because the yields are attractive and will be that much more attractive when rates come back down. And when you start looking at the flows, these Flows are very significant. What do you think?
2: It's unbelievable. If you look at uh, JEPI right now, I'm showing that's taken in $11.5 billion uh, year to date, even though it's underperformed the S&P 500 by like you know 10 or 11 points. Now, I- I- again, I think people have to understand what that strategy is. I'm not saying it should be tracking the S&P 500, but I do find it remarkable. Uh, that it's taken in those types of flows. And I think, to your point, it just shows that investors are still looking to some of those alternative income strategies. And I think they're going to continue to do so. We've seen a lot of uh, competing products launch in that space. You know, are they late to the party? You know, I I don't know. I think, again, investors, we always say, Tom, that, um, you know, money talks, and investors are voting with their dollars, and they continue to vote in that area uh, of the market um, r- real quick, because I do want to ask you about the uh, Artificial Intelligence Symposium last week, I just wanted to give you the top 10 ETFs and flows this year. So I'll just run through these real quick. So VU, the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF that's taken in, believe it or not, almost $30 billion year to date. TLT, which we've mentioned, that's taken in about $16 billion. IVV, that's the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF, about $12.5 billion. VTI, Total Stock Market ETF, over $12 billion. JEPI's number five, which we just mentioned. Uh, number six is AGG, the iShares Core U.S. Aggregate Bond ETF with about uh, like 11.3 bill. Uh, BND, so pretty much doing the same thing. Vanguard Total uh, Bond Market ETF, uh, nearly $11 billion. And then uh, the last three here, um, QUAL, so the iShares Quality Factor ETF, about $9.5 billion. RSP, which we talked about, that's taken in almost $8 billion. And then ESCOV, which which I also mentioned earlier, that's about $7.5 billion. Just before we move on, are any quick comments on any of those ETFs or just flows overall?
3: Well, well back to the comment about uh, 60-40. Uh, a lot of those would fall into those categories, and I think – uh, when you look at allocations going into 24, hopefully the Fed's done its work. Hopefully it's a soft landing. Hopefully valuations still are in line. And guess what? There's tons of money on the sidelines that has to go back to work. Nate, it's, I, I think things look rosy going forward, and we're going to start to see flows kick up again as we finish out the third and fourth quarters of 24. And, uh, it won't be a record year in any way, but I I think that, as you know, the ETF industry is alive and bright, and there's so many new players that are coming into this space that are coming up with new and creative products. I mean, you talk about options overlay strategies. There are a lot of new strategies that uh, are providing great income and at the same time allowing new ETF issuers to set themselves apart.
2: Yeah, and traditionally, if you look at the fourth quarter of of any year, that tends to be one of the strongest quarters for ETF flows. And something else I'll I'll offer here, if you look at the trailing one-year flows, so so not just year-to-date, just the trailing one year, you're talking about like $520 into ETF. So that's a pretty good number over the past year. Um, Tom, before I let you go, tell us about last week's Artificial Intelligence Symposium. Like, How did everything
3: go with that? Uh, Any big takeaways here? Well, uh we know through our behavioral data that a lot of advisors were very much interested in AI and not only how they can invest and we brought some of the best issuers together who have products in this space and briefly nate it's it's three areas that you can invest in AI number one, identifying companies that are utilizing AI to bring more profitability to the bottom line, so there are a bunch of ETFs out there that kind of represent that area. There are also some artificial intelligence ETFs that focus on companies whose sole business is artificial intelligence. So if you want pure plays, there are those that are out there as well. And then finally, companies, asset managers that utilize AI for specific disciplines on when to be in the market, what to buy, when to buy it, how much to buy, and when to sell. So all those uh, ETF issuers came together for our AI symposium. It was great. We had uh, over 1,400 advisors registered, and uh, you know, we're learning a lot. This play, this area of the market is not slowing down. There are more people that are jumping into the space. However, they're doing their research. I, I would say there's still just a small amount of money that's following this area of the marketplace, but it's not going to go away. This is not a flash in the pan. This is a uh, it will be a sector of the market that will be with us and will continue to grow. You
2: mentioned the uh, over 1,400 uh, advisors who attended. For people who missed it for whatever reason, is that available on demand now? Can they go back and register and watch it?
3: It, it sure is. All you do is go to Vetify or ETFtrends.com in and, and the webcast area, and you can watch it on demand. You can get CE credit. But it's great because there are uh, six different 20-minute bite size segments so it's not like it would take you a lot of time. You can go through and look at those areas that you might be interested in. Um, and and most importantly, if you're an advisor or an investor and you've got some money on the sidelines and you're looking to put it back to work, there were some a lot of smart people there uh, providing some good, solid guidance on the, on the AI space.
2: Well, Tom, always uh, enjoy connecting. Excellent stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETFprime. Next week, I'll be joined by Franklin Templeton's David Mann. We're going to discuss several different ETF topics and then Yuri Kajamarian, Chief Investment Officer at TEMA, is going to highlight the launch of their ETF platform and a, a very unique approach to thematic ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.